Hey, this is Tim Davis from Atlanta, Georgia, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Gang, it's Beyond the Box, and it's good to be back with you again today. Today we have a really great episode in store for you. Um, Brian McLaren, which many of you will be familiar with from especially his book, A New Kind of Christian or A New Kind of Christianity. There's a lot of books he's written and a lot of great books, I might add. Um, He has agreed to do a podcast, actually two podcasts with us, and this is the first of two. We are so excited to have Brian on the podcast. Brian, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us on Beyond the Box. I really appreciate it and just look forward to what our listeners have to say and what they receive from this one today. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about Brian's book, A New Kind of Christianity. Uh, The subtitle is 10 Questions That Are Transforming the Faith. We're going to really focus on the first two questions in this podcast, um, which I think you're really going to enjoy. But I do encourage you to pick up the book, wrestle with all 10 questions. There's just a lot of food for thought there, a lot of fodder for conversation that you can have both with people like us and also uh, with friends locally. Just a really great book. Brian is just such an important person, I believe, right now in the faith in asking questions. Just someone that gets us to wrestle with things that we've always kind of taken for granted. And I tell you, he has been just a really important person in my own life through his writings, through listening to different interviews with him and and different lectures. Uh, It's just been really an important part of my walk with the Lord in helping me to really think beyond the box and to be willing to open myself to some new things, which sometimes I'm finding out aren't as new and as innovative as I once thought. Because when you go back and read some early Christian literature, it seems like a lot of these things were surfacing way before they were uh, in the emergent conversation. So definitely want to encourage you to visit brianmclaren.net and check out the book, A New Kind of Christianity, which we're going to dive into right now. So buckle your seatbelt, or should I say unbuckle your seatbelt, and get ready for a wild ride on Beyond the Box. Let's do it. We are super duper excited to have Brian McLaren with us today. He's agreed to be on the podcast, and we're actually going to do a two-for today. We're going to do two different books from Brian, so I'm really excited. Um, I contacted Brian, I guess it's been about two months ago, to talk about his book, New Kind of Christianity, which is really just a... um, It's really a watershed, I think, in the emergent church movement for setting forth kind of a plan going forward. So I am just really excited to have him. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Great to be with you. Thanks, Ray. Brian, um, 
I just want to start out before we jump in the book. I know in 2005, Time Magazine named you as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals. And over the years, I know that Steve and I, my co my co-host on the podcast, um, we found ourselves kind of drifting away from the evangelical label just because of all of the things that it's kind of burdened with and all of the baggage that has kind of come with it. Yeah. Are you still comfortable with that label or, or, or have you nuanced that any, where do you stand with that? Well, I, I probably, the short answer is I, I'm probably right where you guys are. Um, it, it's a, it's a conflicted term, isn't it? I, I especially feel conflicted in an election year when evangelicals tend to present themselves as a voting block and, um, and then engage in some behaviors that I just find so unchristian, unevangelical, and not very helpful for the the uh, for civil discourse and and uh, the common good. So, it, you know, in an election year, it's especially hard to have any association with yeah. that term. Um, but I, I have to say, it is my heritage, and um, there is so much about my heritage that I'm grateful for. So. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think that um, that the religious right and uh, a lot of this kind of political, economic uh, ideology that now is associated with evangelical, I'd like to think that that's a temporary fad that mm. has departed from something more profound and, and historic, and I'm, I'm standing in, in the better tradition. Yeah. But yeah. I, I also have to say one of the big problems is um, I, I hear from a lot of evangelicals uh, who, who, you know, who just wish I would go away. Hmm. And um, one of the problems is, you know, you don't want to stay where you're not wanted. So, you know, I, but on the other hand, you don't want to cut people off. So I, I'm conflicted. That's the best answer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough, it really is a tough label. It seems like um, the umbrella is ever widening. And yet at the same time, there's a, there's a group within evangelicalism that seems to want to kind of hijack the term and use it for their, only their group. So yeah, yeah. it is really a tough thing. Um, could, could I just say one more thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll tell you what I hope will happen. I, all indications are that, that there's virtually no uh, courageous leadership within evangelicalism that's willing to stand up against the more bullying and reactionary voices. Hmm. Um, part of that, I think, is because of money. Um, you know, people who work for evangelical organizations don't want to uh, offend people who are major donors. Yeah. And, and the, the greatest way to get cut off in anything evangelical is to, is to be called a liberal. Hmm. And um, so I, I don't think there's any, any indication that that constricting rightward uh, trend is going to change. Uh, but I think the same is true in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, the similarities between evangelicalism and uh, American Catholicism are striking. Hmm. Um, uh, and meanwhile, the only you know major alternative to that, obviously, you have Eastern Orthodoxy, which is a, a small minority here uh, in the U.S., but um, you have mainline Protestantism, which is kind of shrinking and, and um, you know, has had decades of of struggle. But here's my hope. My hope is that the evangelicals who will, who refuse to be constricted and, and the Catholics who refuse to be uh, uh, restricted and constricted and the mainline Protestants who want to have a fresh vision of the future. If, if those three groups can come together uh, and obviously add, add to that Eastern Orthodox and 
who, who want to have a more ecumenical spirit and the peace churches and, and the historic and the eth ethnic and uh, historic black churches and so on. My gosh, if there is a convergence of those groups, that spells a very bright future, uh, I think, for a, a more progressive, open-minded, um, biblically rooted, and yet unafraid to face the future uh, kind yeah. of Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm with you. I think, I think the future is potentially bright, and uh, I, I just kind of hope for the best when it comes to that. <laughs> right. I, I'm kind of with you there. <laughs> well, in the book, you, um, you cover 10 questions that you say are transforming the faith. Um, we're kind of, I could pick your brain for two days on these, but we're going to kind of focus on the main, on, on the two first questions, which I think really kind of set the stage and the groundwork for the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, that just to kind of quickly go over the questions for our listeners, there's the narrative question, which is uh, the question about what is the overarching theme of the Bible or storyline of the Bible. There's the authority question. How should the Bible be understood? The God question is God violent, which we've spent a ton of time on, on this podcast. Um, the Jesus question, who is Jesus and why is he important? The gospel question, what is the gospel? The church question, what do we do about the church? The sex question, can we find a way to address human sexuality without fighting about it? The future question, which is another one we've recently done, can we find a better way of viewing the future? The pluralism question, how should followers of Jesus relate to people of other religions? And then finally, which is probably a pretty good question, the what do we do now question, how do we take all of this and put it into, ac into action? But it seems like, Brian, in the book that you really, um, the groundwork that you lay for the book really kind of revolves around this idea that we have been hijacked, especially in evangelicalism, but in the church at large, by something that you call the six-line Greco-Roman narrative. Um, you also refer to it as the soul sort narrative, which I kind of got a kick out of. <laughs> I can definitely see where you're going with that. How would you describe to our listeners the six-line Greco-Roman narrative? Where did it come from? How did it become adopted in the church as a whole? And um, what do you see as the alternative to it? Okay. Well, uh, great question. And, and I'm glad that you resonate with the idea that, that that really is the, in some ways, it's the big question. Um, and if we are, are willing to take a fresh look at the biblical narrative, it opens up all kinds of other possibilities. Um, if, uh, if you were to ask most people who grew up either evangelical or Roman Catholic uh, what the basic purpose of Christianity is, I think they would say, especially more traditional conservative folks, I think they would say, it's to solve the problem of original sin. Um, and then if you were to say, well, what is the problem of original sin? They would say, because Adam and Eve sinned, human beings all stand in a state of condemnation um, and they're going to hell. Uh, or if they're Catholics, they might say purgatory. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and we have to find a way to avoid that, if at all possible, for as many people as possible. Um, and so if you think about it, uh, if, if you put it in those terms, then the Bible and the Christian faith and the church all exist to get people out of hell hmm. uh, and, and get them uh, into heaven instead. Or, or get them, if you're Catholic again, out of purgatory as quickly as possible. Um, the problem is, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but it's the truth. I, I was a pastor for probably 15 
years, maybe a little longer. And, you know, when I grew up evangelical, so I'd, I'd grown up with a certain approach to the Bible. But after all those years of, of learning as a kid and then growing as a young Christian myself and then being a, a pastor and preaching all the time, I never realized that the Jewish people, uh, the, the Israelites in the Old Testament, this was not their preoccupation. They had no concept of original sin. They had no concept of hell. Um, their understanding had n- nothing to do with uh, saving souls from hell. Well, as soon as I realized that, it it started, you know, deconstructing all my categories. You know, the I, house of cards. <laughs> oh gosh, it, it's it's devastating, and and so then you're left, you're put in the awkward position of basically saying that an idea that doesn't even emerge in Christian history until somewhere around the fourth century then becomes your, your key for interpreting all of Judaism, all of Christianity, Jesus, you know, the apostles and everything else. Well, once you start asking that question, uh, what is the Bible, what was the biblical story about if it wasn't about rescuing souls from uh, from original sin. Gosh, it, I mean, everything's up for grabs. You have to go back to Genesis and start over again. And you have to really read with an open heart and an open mind. And um, so what, what I call the six line narrative is the way of reading the Bible that starts with creation. The idea of creation is it's a perfect, innocent uh, creation. Uh, there's no change involved in a perfect creation because perfection can't change for the better, otherwise it wouldn't be perfect. Any right. change would be for the worse. So it's a perfect, unchanging creation. And then there's this thing called the fall into original sin that happens because of original sin. And this fall plunges all of creation into change. And so in some ways, the second of my six lines is the fall. It's this fall from perfection downward. And then now we're kind of mucking along in the bottom of this uh, plot diagram in in the third line, which is the fallen world. Um, We're hoping for an upward line, uh, salvation, atonement, forgiveness, uh, and so on. That will put us to the fifth line, uh, which is back in a state of perfection, unchanging perfection, which we call heaven. Um, And if things don't go so well, then there's the sixth line, which is the line down to hell. But once you take apart those lines and you say, boy, this is not the narrative that the Jewish people understood. This isn't how they approach things. This, and, and so Jesus wasn't born into that kind of a, a way of thinking. Um, then you say, well, what is the biblical narrative? And my proposal in the book is, is that instead of thinking about six lines on a, a flat surface, so to speak, we think of three dimensions. Um, the first dimension is the dimension of liberation. Uh, if you were to ask any Jewish person, person what the primary biblical narrative is, they would say Exodus. It's, it's God liberates slaves from slavery. And we take this for granted, Ray, but it's, a, it's an amazing thing in human history that a group of people say God is on the side of the slaves, not on the side of the slave masters. It's an amazing, radical, revolutionary idea. 
that's something Michael Harden really brought out when he talked about mimetic theory and a lot of the stuff that Rene Girard brings out is that idea that the biblical narrative is so different because it identifies with the victim instead of instead of the victor. It it it's yeah, and when you think about it, if God is on the side of Pharaoh to keep law and order, I mean that's what most of us assume. God is on the side of the status quo, keeping the people in power in power. But if you say, no, God is on the side of the victims, God is on the side of the slaves, then God is involved in bringing about change, you know? That's right. That's right. Uh, And and there's this revolution, revolutionary, hopeful dimension to to the whole biblical story. Um, Then I think we, we need a prequel to that story to explain how did we end up in slavery? And of course, that's what the book of Genesis does. It it takes, it, it says, how did human beings end up in this mess where they need to be liberated? Um, it, be liberated either from being slaves or from being slave masters, because both of those are are unnatural and uh, aren't God God's will. They're in a sense they're both dehumanizing it in different ways. So the story of creation becomes um, the the kind of prequel narrative, but then you need a sequel narrative as well. A third dimension, if you will, after creation and liberation, and and that's what happens after the the Israelites are, or after the Hebrew people are liberated from slavery, they settle in um, in Canaan, and then they have to deal with the realities of living in a, a land with hostile neighbors, hmm. and and. Uh, and so then comes about, they start developing this dream, not just of a promised land, but of a promised time. And um, so I, I call that the narrative of reconciliation. Or another word that would be equally good is restoration. Yeah. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, they speak of the restoration of all things. So, yeah. um, uh, so if you take those three dimensions of the biblical narrative, creation, liberation, and reconciliation or restoration, um, you might even call that third dimension new creation because it's trying to get yeah. back to God's original intent. Well, now suddenly we have a very, very different, in my mind, a very capacious, spacious, open uh, uh, space for the, for God to work and for us to live. Mm, mm, that's good stuff. Let me ask you, when you, when you talk about, um, I noticed in the book when you talked about uh, in the six line Greco Roman narrative, the second step, the fall. Yeah. Um, you were saying that you didn't really see in the biblical narrative an ontological fall per se. Um, that just like you were saying that sin, original sin wasn't really the problem. Uh, just as, you know, this is something I've been coming into for the last couple of years and trying to understand, you know, being steeped in conservative evangelicalism and yeah. preaching this stuff and being taught this stuff. Um, what do you what do you do? And I, I know you do a great reading in, in Romans, especially um, just kind of breaking apart and showing how Paul was not a modern debater, but instead he was more like Jesus using parables and metaphors and stories and this kind of thing. What what do you do with someone that says, OK, you've got Romans five, you know, with Adam and Christ. And, it, and it's basically saying that Adam's sin is the problem. It's the whole thing. Yeah. And that Christ came to free us from that. What? How do you work with that? Sure. Well, um, first, it's a good question. And it allows me to fill in something I probably should have said before. Um, first, I'm not minimizing sin. And if you want to call original sin, meaning kind of the primal sin that gets us into trouble. Well, I, I believe in that. Uh, 
uh, I believe that sin is a really, really big problem. In fact, it's our only real problem, you know? Right. Um, uh, and um, uh, so I'm not minimizing sin in any way. But I think when we Western Christians use the term original sin, we don't realize the degree to which Greek philosophy, especially the thinking of Plato, has, has given us our categories, categories that would not have been there for the ancient Jewish people. Hmm. And I don't think, um, I don't think those, and I think those categories are very problematic, uh, uh, partly just because it's an alien philosophy. It doesn't mean it's bad or, or evil, it, but if we're really trying to go back to the Bible, we don't want to have to read the Bible through the lens of, uh, of a Greek philosopher or a school of Greek philosophy. Um, uh, and, um, but it get, it's even worse when Greek philosophy gets picked up by Roman politics. And that's why I call it the Greco Roman narrative, because you put Greek philosophy, Roman politics together, and you have the ideology of empire. And, and when we retell the biblical story within the ideology of empire, it's as if we're putting God back on Pharaoh's side or God mm. back on Caesar's side. And, and here the whole, this whole understanding that, I'm advocating is that no, God is on the side of the slaves, not on the side of Pharaoh. Right. God is on the side of Jesus who gets crucified by Caesar, not on the side of Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's so much at stake there, but um, I think what, what you see in Romans five is re it, it certainly can be read in that Greco Roman narrative. We have as Protestants, you know, 500 years of history of reading it in, in that way. And, and really Protestants just pick up the thinking of Augustine. So we might say we have, you know, over 1500 years of, of history reading it that way. Um, but there's another way to read it. And that way to read it is to say, look, uh, the original, the, the, the sin problem that we have is that we all want to be in the position of gods. Yeah. We want to decide what's good, what's evil. We want to decide who's good, who's evil. We yeah. want to draw the line between the people we like and the people we hate. Who's in and who's out gets back to that soul sort narrative. Exactly right. That we start to see, hold it, that's the problem. That's not the solution. Yeah. And, um, and when we think that way, uh, then pretty soon we're killing the people we don't like. Mm. Uh, mm. And we're, we're writing God out of the equation who loves everybody. Wow. And we're putting ourselves, even though we might keep a form of God, you know, who's nice and domesticated, what we really want is to be able to kill the people we want to kill, exploit the resources we want to exploit, enslave the people we want to enslave, maintain the privileges we want to maintain. And that's, that's the essence of sin. Mm. And mm. Adam, and, and, you know, I don't believe that in, in, it matters whether Adam is a literal figure or not. Uh, I, sure. I think the story of Adam is the way of our telling our own ancient, uh, our own ancient history. But by, but I think what, what uh, Paul is saying in Romans five is, we human beings have, in in Adam, so to speak, have gotten ourselves into this mess of violence and judgment and hate and fear and all the rest. And now in Christ, God is bringing out about the possibility for a new creation, a new mm. humanity. Mm. So it's going right back to those, those uh, three essential themes um, that, uh, that we talked about before. 
that seems to be something I've heard um, N.T. Wright talk a lot about, about how Jesus is, he, he's the, well, I mean, Paul talks about this, Jesus yeah. is the new Adam. Yeah. In Jesus, we have a new Genesis, which is also something you talk about in the book, yeah. and how through Jesus, it's kind of like a, it's like a do-over. Yeah. Um, with this idea of the fall, I don't want to belabor the point, but I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, when when uh, you were talking about it, you also mentioned how you look at it as kind of a coming-of-age narrative. Yeah. And this is something, as I've read more and more um, anarchist literature, mm-hmm. that I've found a lot of people you know, talking about, of course, with progress, the, with technological progress, with um, just general progress, that there is a downside and, and that there are consequences both for the earth, for humanity, um, for really all of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, when you talk about this coming of age story, is that kind of what you're getting at? That there's there's a there's a double edged sword here. There's a negative exactly. and there's a positive. Yeah, exactly right. Um, and you know, I think, I, I guess, you know, I I was a a, a lit major in college, so uh, sure. you know, I don't want to assume that other people have thought much about so much about coming of age stories, but coming of age stories are always about loss and gain. Hmm. You lose the innocence of childhood you lose the simplicity of childhood. You lose um, having somebody, ha- having a parent to tell you what to do and protect you. Um, you, you know, it, Little Red Riding Hood goes out into the forest. You know? Right. Um, it's dangerous. You, you go from safety to danger. Uh, it's so interesting. So many of our ancient myths have a story about an orphan. And, and when you have an orphan, uh, sometimes it's both parents are killed. Sometimes it's just the father missing. Sometimes just the mother. But I think that that's a signal to us. Oh, this is ways that we all are coming to terms with the loss of childhood. Huh. Um, uh, but there are gains in childhood, it, it, moving from childhood to adulthood as well. So negotiating those losses and gains, it seems to me, is is a huge part of what um, what we uh, what we have to do in our individual lives, what we have to do as a society, and I think it's a big part of what what the Bible is uh, is grappling with. You know, you um, in the in the context of this, one thing that really resonated with me over the last, I guess it's been over the last year and a half, year to year and a half, um, I've really become convinced of ultimate reconciliation, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, that was a long process for me, from eternal yeah. conscious torment to annihilation to finally ultimate reconciliation. And one thing you said that really resonated with me about that that soul sort narrative, that six-line Greco-Roman narrative, is that you start with one category of things in creation, and then you end for all eternity with two categories of things, yeah. which it seems like that was always a problem for me, is yeah. why would God create something that was good and then it be ruined for eternity and him be completely impotent to do anything about it. That that was something I, I just found that really, um, I really resonated with that. What yeah, thing you if, talk if, of, if that is, if that is the biblical story, that six line narrative with ending up with, you know, huge numbers of creatures and eternal conscious torment. And if you listen to most fundamentalists, it's the majority yeah. of creatures and fact, for all eternity. If, if you question that, then they'll, quickly tell you that you're one of the ones who will be. (laughs) I'll be there cooking with the rest of them, I guess. (laughs) But, um, you know, you you have to say it would have been better. Yeah. I I mean, it's hard to argue 
that against it, the, the, the proposition that it would have been better if this whole thing never got started. I mean, ah, you know, it, it, I have it, to it, completely agree. It, it, and I just think that's one of those things that people don't normally talk about. Or, and if you want to defend the six line narrative, you can sweep that under the carpet. But I think there's an awful lot of the rest of us who say, uh, you know, meaninglessness would be better. Yeah. Uh, then, and, and you know what, what's interesting, Ray, not many people talk about this, but there's a whole tradition in, in especially Calvinist and Puritan preaching that, uh, that says that the redeemed will be in heaven rejoicing over the torments of the wicked. Yeah. Uh, sick. Sick. Oh, gosh, sick. <laughs> seems to me pretty sick. Yeah. Um, and not only is it sick, uh, but then you think what that does to our behavior toward, uh, toward other human beings. And I've been thinking about this a lot because my next book that will come out this fall is about Christian identity in a multi-faith world. And one of the tragic consequences of this six-line Greco-Roman narrative is that it makes the people who hold it assume that God is against everybody else except us. Mm. Yeah. That has yeah. pretty far-reaching consequences. Well, and you know, the thing is, is if you if you believe that God is eventually going to torture people for eternity, then it becomes a whole lot easier for you to eventually, even though many most of us in the West— don't see ourselves as ever uh, having that potential to do yeah. that harm to someone else. Yeah. But, you know, uh, the history of Christianity is littered with um, the Crusades and the Inquisition and, and all of these kinds of things that basically yeah. were birthed out of that. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, and uh, it's, it's sad to say this, but uh, people who hold that theology in a very committed way right now are the people with the highest likelihood of supporting U.S. using torture. Yeah, uh, yeah. And um, so, I mean, the facts are there is a connection. Now, um, I, I know some people, I, 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 um, there, there, I, I can't even remember where, but it was like three or four years ago, some, uh, you know, very cons conservative and sincere and highly committed Christians uh, said that I was unfair in, in making that connection. And they said, because they fear God and because they fear that God could torture them since they believe God says, don't torture people, that that is a better deterrent for, for them torturing. All, all I'll say is I, I don't deny that that's how they feel, but uh, it, it also strikes me that, that right now the data, I wish, uh, you know, well, the data doesn't hold that up. It, it seems like you conform to the image of the God you believe in is what it seems like to me, <laughs> you know, eventually. Ironically, the God we believe in, creates us. Yes. We yes. are made in the That's image. Great point. God great believe. point. Uh, one thing you hit under this narrative question that really um, is something, having not studied a lot of Greek philosophy, is something that I've encountered more and more as I've read emergent literature, is this idea of uh, Greco-Roman perfection mm -hmm. versus Jewish goodness. Yeah. How does that play into the biblical narrative? And well, how does that change how we understand it? Yeah. Um, Part of what happens in Greek philosophy, and, you know, it's very important for me to say this, Ray, I am not insulting toward Greek philosophy. I, I, I mean, sure. I've read enough Plato to think that, you know, maybe he's, you know, the top three most brilliant people who've ever lived. And, uh, and one sign of how brilliant he was is that people devote their entire lives to 
understanding and teaching Plato, and they completely disagree with each other. (laughs) 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 The the brilliance and the profundity and, you know, to think this happens, you know, 2,300 plus years ago, it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, Yeah. Um, so I'm not a- anti-Plato, um, but uh, but one of the ideas that becomes fundamental to Plato, and even Aristotle, who then in some ways argues against this, by arguing against it, it becomes a primary preoccupation. Mm. Um, it, it's this idea that the ultimate reality is changeless and perfect and... Um, uh, and and that is a very useful political idea, mm. Mm. Um, because it suggests then that God doesn't like change, mm. and it suggests that uh, you know if God could have His way, this whole story would be over with as soon as possible, and we get things back to perfection as soon as possible. That's an inherently conservative viewpoint, you know. Mm. As little change as possible, because change is likely going to take us. Uh, downward. Um, I don't. I don't see that idea in the Bible uh, uh, in, in that same way. Now, obviously, God is referred to as perfect, and God is referred to as without blemish. And I, I of course, you know, but uh, it seems to me this idea of God being good in the Bible is inherently dynamic. Um, in 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 Genesis chapter one, we don't read that God created the world and it was perfect. It was fully inhabited. It was fully uh, developed. You know, the the uh, the internet was already created. You know, <laughs> no, God creates the world and it's got and it develops. God is interested in development. God is interested in fertility. God is interested mm. in novelty and and uh, creativity and new possibilities. I love the way a Catholic. Uh, uh, theologian John Hott says it, that God's creation is like a factory for novelty and beauty. Mm, that's uh, good. That's good. That is the goodness of God. Wow. It's this inherently fertile, dynamic thing, as opposed to a sterile, static thing. Even the idea that the trees and things were created with seeds and that God in the, in the Genesis narrative that he only creates Adam and Eve and everyone else comes from them. seems like there's a co-creation going on that God's yeah. more pleased with than with yeah. just state static states. I mean, even in a small issue, like the animals don't come with names, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Adam gives, gives them names and whatever Adam said, that was its name. So yeah. it's this idea that, yeah, God leaves space. He leaves things nameless. So that people can have the privilege of giving them names. It's it's there's all kinds of open space, mm. wow. uh, and and it's very interesting if you contrast it with uh, I can't remember which uh, where the source for this is, but I remember years ago reading one of the Egyptian creation narratives, and think of the political implications of this belief. Um, God creates the world. He creates the farms. He creates the fences. He creates the shadoofs. And the uh, <gasps> irrigation uh, uh, channels, you know, and then God says, uh, "Oh boy, we need some people to keep this thing going." <laughs> uh, I mean, there is a story of creation that has one very clear message: 
Stay in your yes. place. Yes, empire. That that's a that's a narrative written by empire. <laughs> I've written and endorsed. <laughs> right. And that's what I, I hope. You know, I mean, it sounds like you you've gotten this from reading the book. I hope as people read the book, that's one of the things that they that they get as well. One of these ideas too that I want to touch on um, is is the question number two, which I. I just love some of the illustrations used in that cha- in those chapters on the authority question. And I know um, Phyllis Tickle really introduced this too yeah. in The Great Emergence, the idea that that authority was really uh, where the authority is, is one of the big questions of faith that seems to kind of rock where we are every 500 years. Um, and under this question, it's really asking the question, how should the Bible be understood? Mm-hmm. And you put forth an idea in there that was really something revolutionary to me that I had never really considered is this idea of the Bible as public library versus a constitutional reading of the Bible. Explain that and and help us understand what you were saying there. Sure. Well, you know, um, uh, this is a good place to bring out, uh, I think, a very important uh, idea, Ray, and that is that we have to always remember as we try to study something or understand it, that we bring a whole lot of assumptions you could call it baggage if you want, but it's, it's, it's not like we have the possibility of leaving it behind. We come with a story and we come with vested interests whenever yes. we read the Bible. Every person who does, not only the Bible, every text, uh, you know, we always have vested interests. Absolutely. And, um, and one of our stories as Americans, but as people in the West in general, that we're hardly conscious of, but boy, it deeply forms us. It's this idea that we used to live under the tyranny of kings, but then we discovered democracy. And democracy means freedom and opportunity. And so, you know, we have a thousand ways of telling ourselves that democracy is a wonderful thing. And I kind of agree, and it's a great thing. I've been well taught by my uh, my culture. Um, but one of the ways that we get that great thing of democracy is by replacing kings with constitutions. Now, I know that there aren't that all nations haven't done it this way. You know, the, the UK, for example, doesn't have a constitution, but they come up with a set of protocols for how things are done. And um, so for us, constitutions mean liberty. Constitutions are, are social contracts that that empower us and protect us. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a precious thing to us. So to me, it's no surprise that we, we have gone through a parallel process in religion. If you're Protestant, you look back and say, we used to be under the tyranny of popes and cardinals. But then came Martin Luther and others, and now we live under the uh, principles of scripture. And and so scripture is to uh, uh, popes what constitutions are to kings. Mm -hmm. And so we're deeply, deeply invested in this. And and, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's completely understandable. But now we're in a bit of a pickle theologically because it's ended up with us making claims about the Bible that don't actually fit what the Bible really is. And we've got enough history now of where when we try to use the Bible as if it were a constitution, we've got a track record of doing some pretty terrible things. Yes. And when we look around, we realize 
our most terrible things could still be ahead of us. Mm. So mm. that's where now I think we're at this problem that putting the Bible in that category of constitution is now even more problematic. And so we, we need to find another metaphor for uh, understanding how the Bible has authority. Now, let me stop there and see, see where you want to go with that. Yeah, what you're, what you're really saying, uh, yeah, bells are just going off on the inside of me because this is kind of where Steve and I, for the last couple of years, have been headed towards. Um, of course, growing up in a very conservative evangelical background, you know, I held to biblical inerrancy, you know, tooth and nail. Yeah, so but that began to completely fall apart for me when the very thing happened that you said, I began to see the Bible didn't even claim that for itself. Yeah. And just as you said, it seems like, we think that we come to the Bible with this objective perspective when really we're just uh, superimposing our own culture back onto the text. Um, You, you go on to talk about kind of a new metaphor for reading the Bible is seeing it as a public library um, where not necessarily every statement is inspired by God in the sense of it's straight from the lips of God, but that the conversation that's going on is inspired by God. Talk a little bit about that and, and how you how you see biblical authority in that way, and sure. what does that mean for us as people of faith? Okay, well, let me go back and um, uh, just share an experience of mine. So I said I was an English major, and I remember in probably my freshman year of college, I had to write a paper on Shakespeare. And um, I went to the University of Maryland and our big, the biggest, oldest library was called McKeldin Library. And there was this mysterious thing called the stacks, you know, where the books are really packed in tight. (laughs) And I remember I went up and there was an entire, uh, I mean, it was virtually an entire floor that was nothing but literary criticism about Shakespeare. Wow. And so you think, gosh, Shakespeare's books themselves could fit on one shelf. But now there's almost a whole floor of a library with commentary and debate about interpreting Shakespeare's books. Wow. And what's really weird is after, you know, these hundreds of years since Shakespeare, we haven't agreed on what the single right interpretation of Shakespeare is. Well, then you realize that one of the reasons why Shakespeare is so valuable and so precious and so such a treasure is because it makes people think and it gets people talking about important things and you never get tired of it. And you never feel that you've finally plumbed the depths of it. It is such a well of creativity and inspiration and all the rest that it just keeps people talking about it for hundreds of years. And you know what? We're probably farther from exhausting Shakespeare now than we ever were because each new perspective opens up new possibilities, you know? Wow. Um, So the purpose of a library is not to shut down conversation. The purpose of a library is to stimulate thought, stimulate growth, stimulate uh, uh, stimulate conversation, stimulate uh, vitality and robustness and and reflection. Well, you know what? The Bible has failed as a constitution of solving all problems, you know, and getting us all to agree. I mean, there's what, 22,000 denominations in the United States? Is that right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that kind of tells you something right there. Yeah, that's right. But boy, has the Bible ever succeeded in inspiring the same kind of 
creativity as as I was using Shakespeare as an example. Yeah. Not only that, but now we not only have Shakespeare, but we have hundreds of years of the history of commentary on Shakespeare. So the Bible, it seems to me, if we allow it to have this, this role as an inspired library, we have an awful lot more uh, uh, room to, to work in. We're not talking about throwing it out. We're not talking about saying it's important. I personally think if we can get used to this, like coming of age, there are losses and there are gains. But I think the gains are worth the losses. Um, and let's remember that staying with the old inerrantist view and so on, there are losses as well as gains for that, too. Um, so all that's to say, I think we've got enormous possibilities for looking at the Bible that way. One other quick thought on that is that not only does that help us deal with the Bible now, but it also helps us deal with the way that the later parts of the Bible deal with the earlier parts. <laughs> mm, mm, because, yeah. you know, Jesus comes along and doesn't say, you have heard it said, and so I have nothing more to say. Right. <laughs> he says, you have heard it said, but yeah. I say to you. And then yeah. we have Paul comes along, and Paul does amazing <laughs> things with, with the Old Testament. So at any rate, all that to me, this— honors the Bible for what it really seems to be and do for us. You, you know, before before we wrap up uh, this podcast, I just want to ask you one last thing in regards to that. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone who, I, I mean, I, I've ran the gamut of denominations, but a, as a pastor, I was in a charismatic denomination. And it always hit me as being pretty ironic that we believed in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit still spoke, and yet believed in a closed canon. It, it seemed like those thoughts were completely mutually exclusive to me. Um, that it, it seemed, it really just seemed disingenuous, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I know Steve and I have talked a lot of, in kind of developing this idea of the place of the Bible in the believer's life. Um, but in doing that, we keep we keep butting our heads against the wall a little bit as far as, okay, what place does the Bible have at the table? Um, if we don't believe that the Bible is the inerrant trump card, then is it another voice at the table that maybe is the most, is the kind of the, for, for lack of a better term, this is going to sound rather patriarchal, but, um, you know, kind of like in, in, in an old family in the 1800s, how dad would sit down and he would speak. He was, you know, someone who was silent most of the time. But when he spoke, everyone stopped and listened. And it wasn't necessarily that dad always had his way, but that uh, his voice maybe had a little more weight than everyone else's. Is that kind of how you see the Bible or am I misunderstanding that? Sure. Well, I, I mean, there's a lot about what you just said that I, I would agree with. Obviously, I think the Bible stays at the table uh, and and all the rest. But the, the problem is the the it, your, the the problem I have with that analogy is that the Bible has many many voices. Yeah, yeah true, know, very true. Nehemiah and Amos are not saying exactly the same thing. Very good point. Um, they have different emphases, and I think that's part of the gift of the Bible. You, you know, the first person who got me thinking about this was Walter Brueggemann. Years ago, I read an article by Walter Brueggemann, and he just used a very obvious example. He said. He, he raised the question, what is the Bible's attitude toward the monarchy? You know, Saul, David, uh, Solomon, and so on. Well, you can quote verses of, in the Bible where it says, 
you know, God said, God says, well, because you want a king, you're rejecting me as your king. You just want to be like all the other nations. So there's a very suspicious side uh, uh, attitude toward the, toward the monarchy. But there's another dimension you find, for example, at the end of the book of Judges, it says everyone did what was right in his own eyes in those days because there was no king. In other words, boy, uh, and, and, you know, the kings were a great gift. God gave us David who let who shepherded us. You know, they were like shepherds given to us by God. So there is another tradition that says the king is a great gift from God. Now. In the background you and I grew up with, we would need to make one of those primary and subordinate the other to it. But Walter Brueggemann just said something I thought was beautiful. He said, isn't that the real revelation that to have a king is a gift, but it's mm-hmm. also a danger. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can help us. It can also hurt us. Isn't that a, a more mature understanding of, uh, of the monarchy? Uh, and, and we might even say of government, you know, uh, there's good sides and bad sides to government. We're still fighting that out in our election year, aren't we? We've got yeah. one party that says all government is bad, make it as small as possible. And another yeah. says, no, it's good. You know, we're, we're still playing that out. We're still yeah. working on that, how to work that out. Um, but all that's to say that um, uh, I, I think if we can accept the Bible as giving us a a gift of multiple voices and that if we listen to those multiple voices we will be wiser it's a little yeah. bit like that proverb in the abundance of many counselors there's wisdom mm. um w- one other thing i should say you you brought up the issue of the closed canon and you know i have a uh, this is a rather pragmatic observation but he- here's why i'm in favor of a closed canon not because uh you know well, obviously, everything that we've said, notwithstanding. Um, if you, th- there is a way that adding can actually subtract. Hmm. Um, so let's say we were to say the 66 books of the Bible plus Calvin's Institutes. <laughs> oh, please don't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> especially thinking for you from a four-star background, that would not be so desirable. <laughs> if we were to add Calvin's Institutes, we have we don't have more material; we have less, because mm. Calvin's Institutes shut down a whole set of interpretations and only allow, uh, you know, a certain set of interpretations. Mm. So, to me, if we close the canon, uh, Calvin's Institutes is part of our history, but it doesn't have. It, it's not elevated higher than it should be. Yeah, and so yeah. there's a sense then that that there's a minimalist, uh, that we're better, you know, we're better to have 66 books than 450 books. You right, know? right. <laughs> not yeah. only for credibility's sake, but also because um, uh, we, we don't lose anything. We still can have, we still can have a whole floor of the library of commentary on Shakespeare, but, you know, uh, but we we aren't shutting down anything that that, yeah. that we originally had. Very good point. Very good point. Maybe the maybe the best way to say it is that Jesus should have the head of the table, and maybe the Bible should be somewhere in there. <laughs> well, in fact, maybe that's a good good closing point. Because yeah, exactly. That's one of the other questions in the book is is the uh, the Jesus question, and yeah. and my firm belief is that that we um, 
Well, I like how Martin, Martin Luther said it. He said, the Bible is the manger on which Christ is presented to the world. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Selah. <laughs> that's really good. Well, Brian, thank you so much. We have so appreciated this. Guys, you've got to check out brianmclaren.net um, and kind of get this book, New Kind of Christianity. Uh, I've read through it twice, got it highlighted, written in, listened to the audio version, and I'm still getting stuff out of it. So guys, go check it out. Go to your local bookstore, pick it up. Brian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Ray. Mm -mm -mm -mm. Is that good stuff or what, guys? Man, so much good stuff in this podcast. Brian, I just want to take the time to say thank you, thank you, thank you a million times. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, just really have considered it a privilege to have you along. And I want to take this time, too, to apologize to all of you guys for my nasal-sounding self in this episode. I was really struggling with the, um, with the flu for about, gosh, a week and a half or two weeks, and we actually had to put off doing this podcast for a little bit. And Brian graciously put up with my with my sniffling all the way through the podcast, which I've tried to edit out for you guys so it didn't totally disgust you while we were talking. Um, but so many good things in this podcast. Uh, just so much about what we've always believed about authority, so much about what we've always believed about the Bible. And I tell you, you really need to pick up the book. There are so many good topics in this one. Uh, one of the questions which Brian touched on was the Jesus question, which Steve and I have just really felt um, compelled to really, gosh, rehash on the podcast over and over again, that Jesus really is the filter through which we view God. And even when we find conflicting images in the Bible itself, we have to make a decision. Are we going to go with Jesus as being the full revelation of God? Or are we going to go with the incomplete revelations given to us in the Bible? And boy, that right there might have opened a can of worms in and of itself. Um, but definitely check out brianmclaren.net. Check out A New Kind of Christianity. I'm excited to say we're going to have Brian back on the podcast. We recorded two at the same time. One's going to be on his, the next one will be on his newest book, um, Naked Spirituality. So I want to encourage you to listen to that one. When you see that one come up in your RSS feed or when you see it come up on our website, definitely check out that podcast. It's going to be a great one. We'll have that one in the coming weeks. Um, just want to say thank you to all of you listeners. We just really appreciate you. Appreciate not only you listening, but we really appreciate your interaction. I appreciate um, just the conversations that we're able to have on Facebook, on the website. You've just really been a blessing to both Steve and I. Um, it's just been a real encouragement in my faith. I was just telling someone the other day that I really consider Beyond the Box, the, the people that I interact with through Beyond the Box, to be really a big part of of my own spiritual community and really one of the core ways that I think things through and, and, uh, and really think through my faith. So thank you guys for that. Steve, thank you for just being such a blessing in my life, such a good friend and for, um, just being willing all these years to talk these things out. It's just been a real blessing, man. And just look forward to many more of these. Steve will be joining us. I'm sure on the next podcast. So, uh, hopefully you guys will tune in for that. Don't know what it's going to be about, but it's sure to be fun. <laughs> but anyway, we would love to communicate with you guys, to connect with you guys. You can visit us at beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Um, you can leave comments on this episode or on any previous episode. And I don't want you just to look at it as I'm just leaving a comment out there, but let's start a conversation. Let's talk these things through. And, you know, if you agree, wonderful. If you disagree, wonderful. That's just as good. We'd love to hear from you either way, because... 
Lord knows our minds have been stretched and our hearts have been stretched over these last several years to really embrace things that we never foresaw. (laughs) So we're very open to conversation and very open to your input. Make sure to check out our Facebook page, facebook.com slash beyond the box. We really have some great conversations there. Not only that Steve and I initiate, but lately we've just had a lot of listeners initiating conversation and just kind of doing their own thing. And I absolutely love that. I just want that to be a safe space that people can come and hang out. They can post their ideas for conversation. They can talk about hard things that are um, going on in their own minds. I know we've had some really great questions I've been seeing pop up on Facebook and seen some interaction with um, where people are graciously talking through differences and just uh, really stretching each other. So great, great place to join a community there and and find a safe place to talk through things. You can also subscribe to our Twitter feed, twitter.com slash podcast. Um, the main thing we do with that is just simply to let you know when a new podcast has aired. So uh, subscribe to that if you'd like. We'd love to have you there. Um, also on our website, if you look on the right-hand side towards the top, you'll see a little widget that says, Call Me. You can click that widget and type in your name and phone number. And when you when you click Send, our call service will actually call you back and you can leave a message Um, either a comment about a podcast, an idea that you had for a podcast, anything you want to say on there, it's fair game. So go for it. Um, The number for that, if you want to just call from your phone, maybe you're listening in your car and you've got an idea right now, you can call 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. 626-24-NO-BOX. Once again, that's 626-246-6269. Any way you connect with us, we would love to hear from you. You guys are an awesome blessing. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for listening. And make sure to join us next time when we try and go beyond the box.